Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. You're listening to episode 111 of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World, where we look at mysteries from the twin perspectives of faith and reason. I'm Dom Bettinelli, and I'm joined today by Jimmy Akin. Hi, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. This is a special bonus episode that we recorded to thank our patrons at patreon.com slash StarQuest for their generosity in making this and all our shows at StarQuest possible. We gave them early exclusive access, but now we're sharing it with you to show you one of the benefits of being a patron. Here's the show. Welcome to Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World, which is made possible by you, our patrons on Patreon. We're always looking for ways to thank you for your generosity in making all our shows on StarQuest possible, and this is just one of those ways. We recently reached out to you and asked if you had questions you'd like to ask, and we got many great responses. And so that's what we'll be talking about on this episode of Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World. So, Jimmy, how will we be handling the questions today? The answers today will have to be brief, but we will be devoting future shows to many of the mysteries that we're talking about today. So don't worry about that. Excellent. So our first question comes from Daniel Delaney. Daniel asks, a few years ago, I read a book by Janice T. Connell entitled The Spiritual Journey of George Washington, in which the author made the claim that George Washington had a deathbed conversion to the Catholic Church. Is there any evidence aside from this author's claims that this is true? I've heard about this for years, and there are claims dating back more than a century that this was the case. It is well known that Washington refused to let his troops perform common anti-Catholic ceremonies that were part of popular British culture at the time, you know, things like the November 5th bonfire night, stuff like that. But that could have just been him being a shrewd commander. If you want to keep the Catholic troops working with the Protestant troops, you probably don't want the Protestant troops publicly dissing the Catholic troops. There also have been reports that he would do things like cross himself at mealtime. And, you know, you can kind of think, I mean, if you think about it, so he was Church of England. And if you're in the process of seceding from England, you might think about seceding from the Church of England and maybe going back to what the Church of England seceded from. And so there are claims that while he was on his deathbed, he sent some of his slaves to fetch a Jesuit priest that he was friends with, and that afterwards this priest made a mysterious report to his superiors. It's also claimed that it was popularly believed among Washington slaves that he had been claimed by that horrible Roman Catholic Church just before his death. But one needs to be careful about what one believes about George Washington. There are lots of stories about him that are not true, that are just legends, like, you know, the famous... He chopped down a cherry tree as a boy and then refused to lie. The, you know, I cannot tell a lie. Yeah, I chopped it down thing. Not true. This is just a legend. If memory serves, it was created by Washington Irving, the fiction writer who's also responsible for Rip Van Winkle. And it's easy to imagine how Catholics, uh, a disfavored minority for much of U.S. history, might want to create legends that our famous founding president ended up becoming one of us. I have not yet had a chance to find out what modern historians make of these claims, but I 
do have George Washington, including a real-life conspiracy to have him killed on the list of future topics, so I will be looking into it. The claims that he died a Catholic, though, are not mentioned on the website of Mount Vernon, his home, which is a historic monument today. It's also known that he was a Freemason, and he apparently was uh, buried in Masonic garb, from what I've been able to tell. So we'll have links to both Mount Vernon's page on Washington's attitudes towards Catholicism, as well as a discussion of the subject in the 1899 edition of the American Catholic Historical Researches, which you can read online for free at Google Books. Personally, I'm not betting the farm on this one being true, but we will be looking into it. Historically, lots of people have been historically claimed to have been secret Catholics like William Shakespeare and others. Yeah, and this kind of rumor gets started all the time. I mean, currently in Muslim circles, there's this rumor that Jacques Cousteau became Muslim before his death. And the Cousteau family has repeatedly denied this as, no, he was a Catholic. Interesting. But there are lots of Muslims who are convinced he was a Muslim. <laughs> all right. So our next question comes from Mike and Angie Grotham. They say, if, if vampires were real, would they be considered alive? They don't have a heartbeat, but neither do unborn humans at a certain period of time. But they are sentient and conscious. So then would they have a soul? A human is a body-soul composite, but the soul leaves a death. And if they don't have a soul, then they don't have to follow a code of morality? So they wouldn't go to heaven or hell, but they'd live forever? I'm hurting my brain. Help, Jimmy. So vampires are on the list. You know, we recently did werewolves, and we'll be doing vampires in the future. The answer to the questions will depend on what type of vampire you're dealing with. There are some creepy people who literally do drink blood and consciously live a vampire lifestyle. Some other people who claim to live a vampire lifestyle don't drink blood, but do claim to consume psychic energy from people, and thus they say they're psychic vampires. Such people are living human beings with souls, and the lifestyle they live is problematic. Other vampires, ones of the paranormal kind, may be understood as people who have not died, but who have been infected by something that makes them drink blood, in which case they would also have souls. Some could be understood, some vampires could be understood as people who experienced clinical death, but then were revived, in which case they also would have souls, just like people who have been revived after clinically dying in a hospital. Some could be understood as as having a new spirit that's animating their corpse. And it might not even be a human soul. It might be a demon, you know, some kind of non-human spirit animating their corpse. And some vampires could be understood just as corpses that are somehow animated in a non-living way, in which case they would not have a soul, but would be a kind of meat robot. All vampires with human souls or other spirits would have a moral nature and thus would need to follow the rules of morality. No vampires will plague mankind after the second coming. Therefore, any vampires who survived that long would be assigned their appropriate fate at that time. The fate would be determined based on the vampire's degree of responsibility for what it did, and that could vary from one vampire to another. For example, a human being infected with a rabies-like disease might be innocent of the vampiric acts he performed. The same goes for a person who is innocently turned into a vampire against his will and then who, who then lacked the deliberate use of free will. But a person who was in full charge of their faculties and willingly became a vampire or willingly predated people would be fully responsible for his actions. 
I now need to go back and rewatch Buffy the Vampire Slayer with all of this in mind in these new uh-huh. categories. <laughs> all right. Uh, Nick S. asks, hey, Jimmy, not sure if this question is mysterious enough, but it is sufficiently mysterious to me anyway. I want to know, where did the word church come from? Was it only used by Christians? Does it ever appear in the Old Testament? And would Peter have understood what Jesus meant when he said he was going to build his church on Peter? The word church, the English word church, is an anglicization of the first word of a Greek phrase. The Greek phrase is kuriake oikia, which means the house of the Lord. So the word kuriake is it's based on the Greek word kurios, which means Lord. Kuriake means of the Lord. So kurios becomes kuriake, which becomes kirk in Scottish English and church in English English. But the normal Greek word for church is different. That word is ecclesia, which means assembly. This same word is used in the Greek Septuagint, that's the the Greek Old Testament, about 100 times. And so it does have Old Testament background. You read about the ecclesia in the Old Testament quite, quite a bit. The Hebrew equivalent of ecclesia is the word kahal. In the Hebrew Old Testament, we read about the kahal of the Lord and the kahal of Israel. So the assembly of the Lord or the assembly of Israel, and that's what gets translated ecclesia in the Septuagint. In the Greek New Testament, if you look at Acts 7.38, St. Stephen is giving his speech before the Sanhedrin, and he refers to how Moses was in the ecclesia in the wilderness. And the Revised Standard Version translates that as how Moses was in the congregation in the wilderness. But the Douay-Rheims and the King James Version both refer to Moses being in the church in the wilderness. So you had the idea of the assembly of Israel, and now Jesus is founding his own assembly on Peter. And so because of the Old Testament background of the term, yes, Peter would have understood Jesus was saying he would build his new assembly on him, just as Moses had gathered the original assembly in the desert. All right. Then uh, John Gibault, Gibault, uh, I'll say it the French way, John, maybe that's not how you say it. But he says, uh, hi, guys. When I was a kid, I stumbled across the Charles Burlitt's Books of Weirdness. In Doomsday 1999 AD, haha, he says, Burlitz makes a big deal about a place called Mahenjo-Daro being possible evidence for ancient nukes. So what's the deal with Mahenjo-Daro? Mahenjo-Daro is a site in modern Pakistan. It was built around 2500 BC, so 4,500 years ago. And it was one of the biggest settlements of the Indus Valley civilization. It's a very interesting civilization. It has a writing system known as the Indus script that we have not yet figured out. So we've got this civilization's writing. We just can't read it yet. Claims are made by some that a horrible catastrophe, like a nuclear war, caused the deaths of many people in Mahindradaro. The evidence claimed for this idea is the fact that many bodies were found that seemed to lack a proper burial, with some just having fallen in the middle of the street. So maybe there was a nuclear blast and it killed all these people and they just fell where they were. Kind of like Pompeii, uh, but without the volcano. There were ancient nuclear things on Earth. A lot of people don't know this. Sometime I'll tell you about the Oklo nuclear reactor 
which was a naturally occurring nuclear reactor in Africa <laughs> 1.7 billion years ago. So it's really cool. Wow. But Mahinjadaro does not provide good evidence for an ancient nuclear war. In the first place, some of the bodies that seemed to lack proper burial may have been victims of a war, but a totally normal one with swords and arrows and stuff. And yeah, some of them may have fallen where they lay, but they just got whacked by an ordinary war. Also, these bodies were not all buried at the same time. They were buried centuries apart, so it wasn't a single catastrophe. And some of the bodies were buried, but the circumstances of their discovery were misleading for the archaeologists. So one of the things you find with ancient cities is they tend to get, if, if, they, if they last a long time, if they last for centuries, they get built up in layers because, you know, you have the city, something happens to it, or just the course of time, everything gets covered in dust and dirt and they build new houses and then those get knocked down and they build new houses and you get this pancake-like archaeological structure in uh, the Middle East, this is called a tell. So like you've heard of Tel Aviv, the capital of Israel. Well, it's a tell. It's an ancient city that's built in this pancake-like way with different layers. Also, Armageddon, Har Megiddo, the Mount of Megiddo. Megiddo or Armageddon is also a tell. That's why it's a mount, because it's in the middle of the Jezreel Valley. It's a flat plain, but here's this mount. Why? Because it's a multi-thousand-year-old settlement that's been built up in layers, so it looks like a mount. Well, Mahinjadaro is the same thing. And that means that some of the people were buried in the ground, and they were buried, but the place where they were buried happened to be over a street in an older layer. And so when the archaeologists found these people, it looks like, oh, they just fell in a street. No, they were buried centuries later at a site that was over a previous street. So it just looked like they fell in the street, but really they were buried. Finally, we have one really good way of knowing that Mahinjadaro was not destroyed by a nuclear explosion. It's made of mud brick. And if a bomb had gone off, there wouldn't have been, been any refrigerators for people to hide in <laughs> the the whole thing would have been would show this explosional damage with the mud brick right a uh, personal connection uh, i am familiar with mohenjo-daro from the video game uh, civilization 6 where it uh -huh. appears as a one of the city states so uh, i really love that game because it has all of this ancient history built into it uh-huh plus sean bean narrates everything and that's sean bean is really good so uh -huh. <laughs> so our next question comes from Jenny, who asks, is it wrong that every time this comes up, my first thought is to ask, how much wood would a woodchuck chuck if a woodchuck could chuck wood? Yes, it is wrong. <laughs> it is very wrong. For your penance, say one Our Father and three Hail Marys. <laughs> and the answer is as much wood as a woodchuck could chuck if a woodchuck could chuck wood. Very good. Uh, John Dull asks, hey, Jimmy and Dom, I have a question. A Protestant friend of mine asked me about the Vatican's telescope named Lucifer, which he saw in a YouTube video. I explained the real name, I believe, is Large Binocular Telescope Observatory and showed him the Web page and Facebook link to back that up. But I noticed when doing a search, this is a big conspiracy theory online. My question would be, do you know how this rumor got started? And can you give an insight on this? 
Yeah. So Lucifer is the Latin term meaning light bringer or light bearer. Lux is the Latin word for light, and fair means bear or carry. So Luxifer, Lucifer, means light bearer or light carrier. It's also the name for the planet Venus or the morning star, which metaphorically brings in the light of the day. So Venus is the light bringer star. And because of that, it gets applied in the Bible, the term for the morning star in Hebrew, Greek, and of course, in the Latin Bible in Latin, it gets applied to Jesus, who is called the morning star in uh, the term is, is compared to the morning star in Revelation twenty two sixteen. It's also applied to the high priest Simeon, son of Onias in Sirach 50, verse six, and it's applied to the king of Babylon in Isaiah 14, verse six. However, because of the way some Christians have interpreted Isaiah 14, it also got applied to the devil, who they identified with the king of Babylon, which is why the devil is, also, is often called Lucifer. So anytime you have the word Lucifer, even though it just means light bringer or morning star or Venus, anytime that word is used in English, it gets associated with the devil. And so that's what sparks the conspiracy theory. Now, because of its connection with astronomy via the planet Venus, and because a telescope is literally a light bringer or light bearer, the name Lucifer could be fitting for a telescope. And so somebody, you could imagine why someone with kind of a sense of humor would want to name their telescope Lucifer. And somebody did. But it wasn't the Vatican Observatory. The instrument in question is part of the Large Binocular Telescope, or LBT, which is at the Mount Graham International Observatory in Arizona. It's one of several instruments at the observatory, and it was originally named the Large Binocular Telescope Near-Infrared Spectroscopic Utility with Camera and Integral Field Unit for Extragalactic Research. And if you capitalize just the right letters of that, you get Lucifer. But it's not owned by the Vatican. It's owned by a partnership of four groups, including the University of Arizona, Ohio State University, a German group, and an Italian group. But the Italian group is not the Vatican Observatory. And perhaps in response to the conspiracy theories in 2012, they changed the name of the instrument to LUCI, which stands for LBT Utility Camera in the Infrared. I particularly like that name since I have a daughter named Lucy. So very ah. good. <laughs> so uh, Mike and Angie Grotham also ask, uh, can we hang out with you someday? Sure. Why not? Awesome. <laughs> mm -hmm. And then uh, Frank Lopez asks, I have a couple of Beatles related questions. We know that George Harrison was a devoted Krishnaite, but is it true that he had, that he had a devotion to the Sacred Heart of Jesus? And is Paul really dead? In the 1960s, George Harrison, who was raised a Catholic, did become intrigued by Hinduism and eventually became part of the Hare Krishna tradition, which he remained in till he died. However, according to an article in the Washington Examiner, Harrison's Catholic mother may have succeeded more than he knew. When he went off with Maharishi, he wrote her a letter of reassurance. His Hindu practice, he told her, wasn't taking him, quote, off from any devotion to the Sacred Heart in any way. It only strengthens it. End quote. So maybe he maintained some kind of devotion to the Sacred Heart in a syncretistic way. 
The Paul is dead theory got started in 1967, and it claims that Paul McCartney died in an auto accident in 1966 and was replaced by a lookalike and apparently sound alike. I've got it on. I've got the theory on the list for the future, so we will be discussing whether Paul is dead in a future episode. But until then, you'll have to ask him. Uh, Alan R says, "Hi Jimmy. As we passed by September, I was hoping there would be an episode on 9/11." There are people that doubt the story of what happened, while others dismiss them as conspiracy theorists, if not crazy. Looking at their arguments, some of their points seem valid. There appeared to be little visual evidence of an actual plane at the crash site in Pennsylvania. There also did not appear to be luggage or large plane parts like engines found at the Pentagon. There is video evidence to show successive explosions down one of the World Trade Towers as it fell along, with witnesses that claim to have heard successive explosions. Rather than speculate on alternative theories, I'm curious if the evidence actually supported the story. What's your perspective? We will definitely be discussing what happened on 9-11 in a future episode. And as people who've heard episode 71 on the apparent CIA murder of Frank Olson, or who've heard our recent two-part episode series that we did on the Branch Davidians and the Waco siege... I have no problem saying that elements in the government can be up to no good and then lie about it afterwards. And a 9-11 was definitely part of a conspiracy. However, based on my research so far, the evidence points to that conspiracy being led by Osama bin Laden, not anybody in the American government. So far, the arguments I've seen to the contrary have had plausible answers. For example, my understanding is that the alleged multiple explosions when one of the towers fell, was caused by the different stories of the building pancaking down as they collapsed, with one floor hitting another and expelling the air and blowing out the windows before that floor falls down and blows out the air and explodes the windows on that floor. And so you get this bang, 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 bang effect as one floor collapses into another. And it sounds like and looks like a series of multiple explosions, but really it's just the way the building is coming down on top of itself. So we will go into that more in the future, but for now we'll have some uh, further resources, including a link to a series of articles and actually a book that Popular Mechanics did looking at all of these claims. Uh, William Norton uh, says, Hi, Jimmy and Dom. I was listening to an old episode of yours that mentioned Hal Putoff, I've had the pleasure of meeting him a couple of years ago, and had he had quite a bit to say about remote viewing. Is there anyone still researching remote viewing today? I think Hal could show up in many shows based on what little I know of him. Yeah, so that's really cool you got to meet Hal Putoff. He, for people who aren't familiar with him, he is a physicist. He got his start, or at least did a lot of early work, in lasers in physics back in the 1960s. And then around 1970, he also was starting to do some work in quantum biology, you know, the intersection between quantum physics and and life. And he then got diverted when he was working at the Stanford Research Institute into experiments involving remote viewing and remote perturbation and other psychic phenomena. And he became a paranormal researcher and ended up playing a key role in the development of the government's Stargate psychic spying program. He also then went off to join another organization where he was doing research into zero point energy. So, yeah, he can come up in a bunch of episodes. 
what remote viewing is, is essentially it's kind of a modern version of clairvoyance, where the claim is you can psychically sense things at distant locations. And in conjunction with put-off, the military ended up developing a protocol for how to do this with multiple stages to try to control the signal-noise ratio so that you're eliminating out stuff like your imagination is telling you and just focusing in on the signal of what's really happening at this other location. And we'll definitely be talking about that in the future. There are a lot of people doing remote viewing today and continuing studies are being done on it at a variety of parapsychology labs around the world. I've actually done quite a bit of reading about remote viewing and we'll have several future episodes looking at different aspects of it. In fact, episode 102, which we haven't yet recorded at the time we're recording this, will deal with the early research that Putoff did on remote viewing. And so check out episode 102. It either will be coming up if you're one of our patrons who's listening to this with the early exclusive access, or it will already have come out if you're a member of the general listening audience who's listening to this as episode 111. In any event, you can check that out, and we'll also be doing follow-up episodes like dealing specifically with the government Stargate psychic spying program and contemporary research into remote viewing and things like that. All right. Blake Lido asks, why is the universe so big and we are so small? Because we need to fit into the universe. It needs to be bigger than us. So it needs to be at least somewhat bigger than us. Also, you need, in order for us to have physical bodies, they need to be made out of certain elements like carbon and oxygen and iron, not, not so much iron, a little bit of iron and phosphorus, things like that. And to get those elements, since they weren't formed in Big Bang nuclear synthesis, which only produced hydrogen and helium and a little bit of lithium, you need to get them from stellar nucleosynthesis, which is the process by which stars convert helium and hydrogen and helium into heavier elements and then release those elements so they can form planets and life forms. And in order to get them to release those elements, the stars need to go bang. So, Part of the reason why the universe needs to be so much bigger than us is because we need stars to go bang to produce the elements our physical bodies are made out of, but you don't want the stars so close together that they'd kill us when they go bang. So we need a big universe where stars go bang, but they aren't that close together. At least you need those things the way God chose to set up the laws of this universe. Uh, so the short answer is because God decided to do it that way. <laughs> yeah, but that's the longer, more informative answer. And okay. it's an illustration of how I try to take every question as if it's serious, even if it may have been meant facetiously. Yeah, no, that's that's good. I like that. Nick Wan asks, I remember as a kid hearing warnings about several issues that we don't really hear about anymore. Uh, number one, the ozone layer. In school, we heard about how the CFCs and hairspray were eating a hole in the ozone layer. And so we're all going to get cancer. Did we fix the hole in the ozone layer? Two, killer bees. Killer bees had supposedly taken over Central America and were poised to invade the USA, displacing all our honeybees. I guess that never happened, right? Uh, three, save the whales. In the 80s, overfishing and the Japanese were going to drive the whales to extension. Star Trek Four even addressed this. Humpback whales. That's crazy. Who would send a probe hundreds of light years to talk to a whale? It's possible. 
Way else have been on Earth far earlier than man. Ten million years earlier, and humpbacks were heavily hunted by man. They've been extinct since the 21st century. It is possible that an alien intelligence sent the probe to determine why they lost contact. I guess they're no longer in danger? Here are a few more that I just thought of. The Philadelphia Experiment, the USS Eldridge, the Nazi nuclear in America bomber programs, Nazi technology and UFOs, Atlantis, Soviet submarine mutinies, the Culper Ring. We'll have future episodes on many of the things that Nick just briefly mentioned, but to deal with the three major things that he remembers hearing about that we don't hear so much about anymore. First, the ozone hole, so-called hole, is still there, but it's not a crisis. This was a case where the science got politicized and significantly misrepresented to the public by the press in order to do the 1970s and 80s equivalent of clickbait. First, the ozone hole isn't really a hole. It's a thinning of the ozone in the atmosphere. There is still ozone up there. It's just less than in other places. Second, and this was more clearly communicated to the public, the so-called hole is only over Antarctica. There is a little thinning there. There's a little, there's thinning there. There's a little thinning elsewhere. And there's a smaller little dimple that appears over the North Pole. But it's really Antarctica where the major thinning occurs. Third, this doesn't have anything to do with global warming, though it's often confused with that. Ozone depletion is caused by things like the use of chlorofluorocarbons or CFCs, which, as the name suggests, are compounds containing chlorine, fluorine, and carbon. The release of CFCs and related compounds greatly decreased after the press scared the public into thinking we'd all get skin cancer because of the ozone hole, even though we don't live in Antarctica. And then fourth, it turns out the thinning of the ozone over Antarctica is cyclical. It starts thinning every spring when the sun starts shining over Antarctica adding energy to the environment, which then starts thinning out the ozone. But then in the course of the year, the ozone builds back up again. So this just is something that happens every year down there. But because the chemicals that everyone was scared about have largely been phased out, the ozone hole today is just an annual thing that happens in Antarctica, and then it gets reversed over the course of the year. When it comes to killer bees, yes, they are here in the U.S., but it's, again, not a crisis. This was more media hysteria. Africanized honeybees have started to take over U.S. hives all over the southwestern United States and in some other parts of the countries. One of the ways they tell that is Africanized honeybees produce much more honey. So if you've got a hive and it suddenly amps up its honey production, that's a sign that it's been colonized by Africanized bees. We have Africanized honeybees here in Southern California. In fact, I was up at the Prince of Peace Abbey here in Southern California. It's about 45 minutes north of here in Oceanside. And they keep bees at, uh, at, at there. And this was, oh, it was quite a number of years ago. But they had already noticed that their, hive product, their hive's production of honey had really jumped. And so they were really confident they had killer bees now. But the name killer bee is an exaggeration. They're, they are more aggressive than North American honeybees, but they don't kill people like the movies and the media made it sound like. However, I did suggest that they that Prince of Peace Abbey not let Jack Chick know that a <laughs> Catholic monastery was housing killer bees 
in its hives because you can just imagine what kind of conspiracy theory Jack Chick, the anti-Catholic cartoonist, would come up with if he knew that. <laughs> so we do have him here in America now, but it hasn't been the kind of problem that the media hysteria would have led you to think. Whale population depletion, to get to the third topic, is real, but there has been improvement. Since the 1980s, there has been a large-scale moratorium on commercial whaling, or whale fishing, as it's called in the novel Frankenstein. <laughs> I like how, how they, you, you, in Frankenstein you read Mary Shelley's writing about the whale fishers. As if this was an ordinary kind of fishing where you're doing a Nantucket sleigh ride. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But there are exceptions made for Aboriginal whaling, you know, so various native people still have the ability to do some limited whale hunting. But the because the commercial because the commercial moratorium, various whale populations have made significant recoveries. In fact, some of the recoveries are so significant that there is a controversy about whether the conservation status of certain whale populations should be changed because they're just not in the kind of danger they were anymore. There's a lot more of them. Pro-whaling groups want the classifications changed to reflect the greater numbers, arguing that it's no longer accurate to portray certain populations as endangered. So from their perspective, they say, we want these, these classifications to reflect the reality that these guys just aren't as endangered as they were. However, Anti-whaling activists don't want the classifications changed because they're afraid it would lead to more whaling. And so we're in a situation where, once again, the science has become politicized. That being said, here are uh, rankings given for some key populations of whales by the International Union for the Conservation of Nature. And on their rankings, the Antarctic population of blue whales, so this is not all blue whales, this is the ones that live in the Antarctic Ocean, they're critically endangered, and that's their most extreme classification, is critically endangered. The northwest populations of gray whales are endangered. Northwest Pacific, I'm sorry, northwest Pacific populations of gray whales are endangered, but not critically. The Atlantic population of the blue whale musculus species is not endangered, but it is vulnerable as are the fin whale and sperm whale species. The North Pacific blue whale and the Northwest Pacific gray whale are at lower risk, but are listed at conservation dependent. So they need to be apparently active conservation efforts to help keep their populations growing. The beluga whale population is listed as lower risk, but near threatened. And among those who are in the least concerned category are the humpback whale, who actually aren't in danger of going extinct today. And hopefully that'll hold up for the rest of the 21st century. Excellent. And I do want to recommend, by the way, if you want to hear more about whales and Star Trek, uh, an excellent episode uh, we recently had on the secrets of Star Trek uh, on Star Trek for the voyage home. So you can check that out. Uh, one thing that uh, he does mention is the, uh, the, the culper ring which is a reference to uh, yes, the spy uh, ring George, George Washington set up. Yeah. Yes. I want to recommend an excellent book I've read on that called Washington Spies, The Stories of America's First Spy Ring by Alexander Rose. Uh, and there's a, a TV series that came out about that called Turn, which was, I think it was on AMC, but it's on Netflix now, so you can you can check it out, uh, which was fictionalized and a little bit soap opera-y as you'd expect. But the original book was really good, too. So 
Uh, you Ho- hear hopefully about not as not as fictionalized as the blue book uh, fictionalized <laughs> version of J. Allen Hynek's career. It's like, <laughs> wow, does that get fictionalized? Oh yes, it's uh, they've they've gone full X Files fringed on on that one. So <laughs> very good. So uh, that's one of my further resources for folks. But Jimmy, what are your further resources for today's show? Yeah, and definitely let's let's include links to those uh, so people can check it out. Yeah, the uh, we'll have also links to Did Washington Die a Catholic, which is a discussion in the American Catholic Historical Researches for eighteen ninety nine. Also, Mount Vernon's webpage on Washington's attitudes towards Catholicism, vampire subculture, Mohenjo-Daro, and a refutation, a skeptical refutation of the Mohenjo-Daro nuclear claim. Also, the Large Binocular Telescope Observatory's website, as well as information on the Lucifer instrument, and uh, information on the ownership of the Large Binocular Telescope so array so or observatory, so you can... See for yourself, yep, here are the owners, and Vatican is not one of them. Also, we'll have articles on the religious views of the Beatles, that Washington Examiner article mentioning Harrison and the Sacred Heart, also the Paul is Dead theory, information on the September 11th attacks, both the standard view and the alternative views, as well as Popular Mechanics articles on the subject and the links to that Popular Mechanics book length treatment of the alternative views of September 11th. Also, information on HAL put-off and remote viewing, and then on the ozone hole, killer bees, and whale conservation. All right, so uh, that's it from us. We want to send a thank you to all our patrons, and especially those who have submitted questions. Uh, you can submit feedback by going to patreon.com slash starquest, or by visiting sqpn.com, or the Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World Facebook page, and leaving feedback there, or you can send an email to mysterious at sqpn.com or send a tweet to at mys underscore world with the hashtag of mysterious feedback. And you'll find links to all of these resources from our discussion on our show notes at patreon.com slash starquest. And eventually when we release this to the general public at sqpn.com slash mysterious. And until next time, Jimmy Aiken, thank you for exploring with us our mysterious world. Thanks, Dom. And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to and supporting Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World on StarQuest. We hope you've enjoyed this patron's question show. Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is only possible because of the generosity of our patrons on Patreon. If you'd like to support Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World and have your questions answered on future shows for patrons, please visit sqpn.com slash give.